Section 22 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Gray. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 8, Energy and Courage, Part 3. Jonas Hanway was another of the many patient and persevering men who have made England what it is, content simply to do with energy the work they have been appointed to do, and go to their rest thankfully when it is done, leaving no memorial but a world made better by their lives. He was born in 1712 at Portsmouth, where his father, a storekeeper in the dockyard, being killed by an accident, he was left an orphan at an early age. His mother removed with her children to London, where she had them put to school, and struggled hard to bring them up respectably. At seventeen, Jonas was sent to Lisbon to be apprenticed to a merchant, where his close attention to business, his punctuality, and his strict honor and integrity gained for him the respect and esteem of all who knew him. Returning to London in 1743, he accepted the offer of a partnership in an English mercantile house at St. Petersburg, engaged in the Caspian trade, then in its infancy. Hanway went to Russia for the purpose of extending the business, and shortly after his arrival at the capital, he set out for Persia, with a caravan of English bales of cloth, making twenty carriage loads. At Astrakhan, he sailed for Astrabad, on the southeastern shore of the Caspian, but he had scarcely landed his bales when an insurrection broke out, his goods were seized, and though he afterwards recovered the principal part of them, the fruits of his enterprise were in a great measure lost. A plot was set on foot to seize himself and his party, so he took to sea, and after encountering great perils, reached Gillen in safety. His escape on this occasion gave him the first idea of the words which he afterwards adopted as the motto of his life, Never Despair. He afterwards resided in St. Petersburg for five years, carrying on a prosperous business, but a relative having left him some property and his own means being considerable, he left Russia and arrived in his native country in 1755. His object in returning to England was, as he himself expressed it, to consult his own health, which was extremely delicate, and do as much good to himself and others as he was able. The rest of his life was spent in deeds of active benevolence and usefulness to his fellow men. He lived in a quiet style in order that he might employ a larger share of his income in works of benevolence. One of the first public improvements to which he devoted himself was that of the highways of the metropolis, in which he succeeded to a large extent. The rumor of a French invasion being prevalent in 1755, Mr. Hanway turned his attention to the best mode of keeping up the supply of seamen. He summoned a meeting of merchants and shipowners at the Royal Exchange, and there proposed to them to form themselves into a society for fitting out landsmen, volunteers, and boys to serve on board the King's ships. The proposal was received with enthusiasm. A society was formed, and officers were appointed. Mr. Hanway directing its entire operations. The result was the establishment in 1756 of the Marine Society, an institution which has proved of much national advantage and is to this day of great and substantial utility. Within six years from its formation, 5,451 boys and 4,787 landsmen volunteers had been trained and fitted out by the Society and added to the Navy, and to this day it is in active operation, about 600 poor boys, after a careful education, being annually apprenticed as sailors, principally in the merchant service. 
mr hanway devoted the other portions of his spare time to improving or establishing important public institutions in the metropolis from an early period he took an active interest in the foundling hospital which had been started by thomas caram many years before but which by encouraging parents to abandon their children to the charge of a charity was threatening to do more harm than good he determined to take steps to stem the evil entering upon the work in the face of the fashionable philanthropy of the time but by holding to his purpose he eventually succeeded in bringing the charity back to its proper objects and time and experience have proved that he was right the magdalen hospital was also established in a great measure through mr hanway's exertions but his most laborious and persevering efforts were in behalf of the infant parish poor the misery and neglect amidst which the children of the parish poor then grew up and the mortality which prevailed amongst them were frightful but there was no fashionable movement on foot to abate the suffering as in the case of the foundlings so jonas hanway summoned his energies to the task alone and unassisted he first ascertained by personal inquiry the extent of the evil he explored the dwellings of the poorest classes in london and visited the poorhouse sick wards by which he ascertained the management in detail of every workhouse in and near the metropolis he next made a journey into france and through holland visiting the houses for the reception of the poor and noting whatever he thought might be adopted at home with advantage he was thus employed for five years and on his return to england he published the results of his observations the consequence was that many of the workhouses were reformed and improved in seventeen sixty one he obtained an act obliging every london parish to keep an annual register of all the infants received discharged and dead and he took care that the act should work for he himself superintended its working with indefatigable watchfulness he went about from workhouse to workhouse in the morning and from one member of parliament to another in the afternoon for day after day and for year after year enduring every rebuff answering every objection and accommodating himself to every humour at length after a perseverance hardly to be equalled and after nearly ten years labour he obtained another act at his sole expense seven geo three c thirty nine directing that all parish infants belonging to the parishes within the bills of mortality should not be nursed in the workhouses but be sent to nurse a certain number of miles out of town until they were six years old under the care of guardians to be elected triennially the poor people called this the act for keeping children alive and the registers for the years which followed its passing as compared with those which preceded it showed that thousands of lives had been preserved through the judicious interference of this good and sensible man wherever a philanthropic work was to be done in london be sure that jonas hanway's hand was in it one of the first acts for the protection of chimney-sweepers boys was obtained through his influence a destructive fire at montreal and another at bridgetown barbados afforded him the opportunity for raising a timely subscription for the relief of the sufferers his name appeared in every list and his disinterestedness and sincerity were universally recognized but he was not suffered to waste his little fortune entirely in the service of others five leading citizens of london headed by mr hoare the banker without mr hanway's knowledge waited on lord bute then prime minister in a body and in the names of their fellow-citizens requested that some notice might be taken of this good man's disinterested service to his country the result was his appointment shortly after as one of the commissioners for victualling the navy towards the close of his life mr hanway's health became very feeble and although he found it necessary to resign his office at the victualling board he could not be idle 
but labored at the establishment of Sunday schools, a movement then in its infancy, or in relieving poor blacks, many of whom wandered destitute about the streets of the metropolis, or in alleviating the sufferings of some neglected and destitute class of society. Notwithstanding his familiarity with misery in all its shapes, he was one of the most cheerful of beings, and, but for his cheerfulness he could never, with so delicate a frame, have got through so vast an amount of self-imposed work. He dreaded nothing so much as inactivity. Though fragile, he was bold and indefatigable, and his moral courage was of the first order. It may be regarded as a trivial matter to mention that he was the first who ventured to walk the streets of London with an umbrella over his head, but let any modern London merchant venture to walk along Cornhill in a peak Chinese hat, and he will find it takes some degree of moral courage to preserve in it. After carrying an umbrella for thirty years, Mr. Hanway saw the article at length come into general use. Hanway was a man of strict honor, truthfulness, and integrity, and every word he said might be relied upon. He had so great a respect, amounting almost to a reverence, for the character of the honest merchant, that it was the only subject upon which he was ever seduced into eulogium. He strictly practiced what he professed, and both as a merchant and afterwards as a commissioner for victualling the navy, his conduct was without stain. He would not accept the slightest favor of any sort from a contractor, and when any present was sent to him whilst at the victualling office, he would politely return it with the intimation that he had made it a rule not to accept anything from any person engaged with the office. When he found his powers failing, he prepared for death with as much cheerfulness as he would have prepared himself for a journey into the country. He sent round and paid all his tradesmen, took leave of his friends, arranged his affairs, had his person neatly disposed of, and parted with life serenely and peacefully in his seventy-fourth year. The property which he left did not amount to two thousand pounds, and, as he had no relatives who wanted it, he divided it among sundry orphans and poor persons whom he had befriended during his lifetime. Such, in brief, was the beautiful life of Jonas Hanway, as honest, energetic, hard-working, and true-hearted a man has ever lived. The life of Granville Sharp is another striking example of the same power of individual energy, a power which was afterwards transfused into the noble band of workers in the cause of slavery abolition, prominent among whom were Clarkson, Wilberforce, Buxton, and Broham. But giants, though these men were in this cause, Granville Sharp was the first, and perhaps the greatest of them all, in point of perseverance, energy, and intrepidity. He began life as apprentice to a linen draper on Tower Hill, but leaving that business after his apprenticeship was out, he next entered as a clerk in the ordnance office, and it was while engaged in that humble occupation that he carried on in his spare hours the work of negro emancipation. He was always, even when an apprentice, ready to undertake any amount of volunteer labor where a useful purpose was to be served. Thus, while learning the linen drapery business, a fellow apprentice, who lodged in the same house and was a Unitarian, led him into frequent discussions on religious subjects. The Unitarian youth insisted that Granville's Trinitarian misconception of certain passages of scripture arose from his want of acquaintance with the Greek tongue, on which he immediately set to work in his evening hours, and shortly acquired an intimate knowledge of Greek. A similar controversy with another fellow apprentice, a Jew, as to the interpretation of the prophecies, led him in like manner to undertake and overcome the difficulties of Hebrew. But the circumstance which gave the bias and direction to the main labors of his life originated in his generosity and benevolence. His brother William, a surgeon in Mincing Lane, gave gratuitous advice to the poor, 
and amongst the numerous applicants for relief at his surgery was a poor african named jonathan strong it appeared that the negro had been brutally treated by his master a barbados lawyer then in london and became lame almost blind and unable to work on which his owner regarding him as of no further value as a chattel cruelly turned him adrift into the streets to starve this poor man a massive disease supported himself by begging for a time until he found his way to william sharp who gave him some medicine and shortly after got him admitted to st bartholomew's hospital where he was cured on coming out of the hospital the two brothers supported the negro in order to keep him off the streets but they had not the least suspicion at the time that any one had a claim upon his person they even succeeded in obtaining a situation for strong with an apothecary in whose service he remained for two years and it was while he was attending his mistress behind a hackney coach that his former owner the barbados lawyer recognized him and determined to recover possession of the slave again rendered valuable by the restoration of his health the lawyer employed two of the lord mayor's officers to apprehend strong and he was lodged in the compter until he could be shipped off to the west indies the negro bethinking him in his captivity of the kind services which granville sharp had rendered him in his great distress some years before dispatched a letter to him requesting his help sharp had forgotten the name of strong but he sent a messenger to make inquiries who returned saying that the keepers denied having any such person in their charge his suspicions were roused and he went forthwith to the prison and insisted upon seeing jonathan strong he was admitted and recognized the poor negro now in custody as a recaptured slave mr sharp charged the master of the prison at his own peril not to deliver upon strong to any person whatever until he had been carried before the lord mayor to whom sharp immediately went and obtained a summons against those persons who had seized and imprisoned strong without a warrant the parties appeared before the lord mayor accordingly and it appeared from the proceedings that strong's former master had already sold him to a new one who produced the bill of sale and claimed the negro as his property as no charge of offence was made against strong and as the lord mayor was incompetent to deal with the legal question of strong's liberty or otherwise he discharged him and the slave followed his benefactor out of court no one daring to touch him the man's owner immediately gave sharp notice of an action to recover possession of his negro slave of whom he declared he had been robbed about that time seventeen sixty seven the personal liberty of the englishman though cherished as a theory was subject to grievous infringements and was almost daily violated the impressment of men for the sea service was constantly practised and besides the press gangs there were regular bands of kidnappers employed in london and all the large towns of the kingdom to seize men for the east indian company's service and when the men were not wanted for india they were shipped off to the planters in the american colonies negro slaves were openly advertised for sale in the london and liverpool newspapers rewards were offered for recovering and securing fugitive slaves and conveying them down to certain specified ships in the river the position of the reputed slave in england was undefined and doubtful the judgments which had been given in the courts of the law were fluctuating and various resting on no settled principle although it was a popular belief that no slave could breathe in england there were legal men of eminence who expressed a directly contrary opinion the lawyers to whom mr sharp resorted for advice in defending himself in the action raised against him in the case of jonathan strong generally concurred in this view and he was further told by jonathan strong's owner that the eminent lord chief justice mansfield and all the leading counsel were decidedly of opinion that the slave by coming into england did not become free 
but might legally be compelled to return again to the plantations such information would have caused despair in a mind less courageous and earnest than that of granville sharp but it only served to stimulate his resolution to fight the battle of the negro's freedom at least in england forsaken he said by my professional defenders i was compelled through the want of regular legal assistance to make a hopeless attempt at self-defence though i was totally unacquainted either with the practice of the law or the foundations of it having never opened a law-book except for the bible in my life until that time when i most reluctantly undertook to search the indexes of a law library which my bookseller had lately purchased the whole of his time during the day was occupied with the business of the ordnance department where he held the most laborious post in the office he was therefore under the necessity of conducting his new studies late at night or early in the morning he confessed that he was himself becoming a sort of slave writing to a clerical friend to excuse himself for delay in replying to a letter he said i profess myself entirely incapable of holding a literary correspondence what little time i have been able to save from sleep at night and early in the morning has been necessarily employed in the examination of some points of law which admitted of no delay and yet required the most diligent researches and examination in my study End of section twenty two